Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 212. We'll cover the Scroll of Ruth with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 4 and follow with some thoughts about intermarriage. If Song of Songs, which we completed last episode, is an integral part of the Passover liturgy, the Scroll of Ruth is associated with the subsequent holy day on the Jewish calendar Shavuot. Why this ostensible love story is connected to what, for many, is an orgy of dairy consumption will become evident. I can't believe I ate that whole thing. Our story begins, quote, in the days when the judges ruled, with a crisis. A drought ravages the land of Judea, forcing Eliamelech and his partner Naomi and their sons Machlon and Chilion to leave their home and head to the lands east of the Dead Sea, the land of Moab. Moab has a long history in biblical literature. The Moabites were descendants of the incestuous union of Lot and his daughters. That's a bit damning, isn't it? They were also involved in the strange incident at Peor during the period of the desert wandering before the Jews entered the land of Israel. Balak, the king of the Moabites, hired the sorcerer Bilam to curse the Jews from the peak of Mount Peor, but Bilam blessed the Jews instead. But this didn't assure victory for the Jews in the battle that was surely to come because Jewish men found themselves carousing with the Moabite women and worshipping Baal. Moshe was instructed to purge the camp of all the fornicators, and it's not clear if he initiated this command. The Torah went on to ban any sort of intercourse, social, cultic, or sexual, with the Moabites. Throughout the book of Joshua, we don't really hear from the Moabites until the book of Judges, the period during which our story with Ruth takes place. After the Jews conquer Canaan, relations with Moab is a mixed bag. The border is often peaceful, but there were periods of intense conflict and suppression. The Moabites, according to Judges chapter 3, reduced the Jewish tribes to vassals. In response, Ehud ben Gera assassinated the Moabite king Eglon and rallied the tribes into insurrection. For the next 80 years, according to the text, there was peace between Moab and the Jews. So it's not that surprising that Elimelech and family crossed the frontier without incident to seek refuge from conditions in Judea, and their presence is tolerated in Moab. But on the heels of that crisis, tragedy. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi alone with two children. Naomi decides to remain and settle in Moab with her two sons, and quote, they took for themselves Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth and they dwelled there some ten years. But then, in an almost Job-like manner in its rapidity in the text, although many years seem to pass, tragedy strikes a third time. Machlon and Chilion, Naomi's sons, also die, leaving her sonsless and her daughters-in-law as widows. By now, however, the drought has ended. Quote, Adonai has singled out his people to give them bread. Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and her widowed daughters-in-law accompany her on the road. As they walk, Naomi tries to convince them to stay in their native land. Her plea is heartbreaking, quote, Go back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb who could be husbands to you? Go back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. Even had I thought, I have hope. This very night I shall have a husband and bear sons. Would you wait for them till they grew up? For them, would you be deprived of husbands? No, my daughters, 
for it is far more bitter for me than for you because Adonai's hand has come out against me. Orpah is convinced and relents, but Ruth remains, quote, Do not entreat me to forsake you, to turn back from you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people is my people, and your God is my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So may Adonai do to me or even more, for only death will part you and me. The two arrive in Bethlehem and, quote, The whole town was astir over them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for Shaddai has dealt great bitterness to me. I went out full and empty did Adonai bring me back. Their timing, on the other hand, is great because, quote, They had come to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Their timing also explains why we read the scroll of Ruth on Shavuot. The first fruits of grain offered during the Passover would have been barley. In the Judean hill country where Bethlehem is located, part of the grain harvest would be completed after Shavuot, especially in years in which Shavuot came as early as mid-May. And even though all the crop might not be harvested by Shavuot, Shavuot celebrated the entire grain harvest, including the small amount of grain to be harvested shortly after the festival. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth taking the initiative and demonstrating her savviness. We are introduced to Boaz, a relative of Elimelech, and his vast holdings. Ruth declares, quote, Let me go pray to the field and glean from among the ears of grain after I find favor in his eyes. She is explicitly identified here as a Moabite to underscore what I think is her cleverness. She knows she's a foreign woman, but she also knows Jewish law, specifically the commandment in Leviticus enjoining the reapers to leave what they fail to pick up so the poor can collect it. As she hopes, Ruth catches Boaz's eye. He springs into action once he discovers who she is and her tenuous family tie. He invites her to glean exclusively in his fields and instructs the gleaners and other workers to leave her be. He also permits her to drink from the water he provides for his workers. She's taken aback by his generosity. Quote, Why should I find favor in your eyes to recognize me when I am a foreigner? He tells her that he knows all that she did for Naomi, the wife of his kinsman Elimelech, and that, quote, May Adonai requite your actions and may your reward be complete from Adonai, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to shelter. When Ruth brings home all the food Boaz has arranged for her to have, there is great gladness and joy. And for the first time in years, hope. Naomi says, quote, The man is related to us. He is of our redeeming kin. What does this mean? Throughout the scroll, we come across the term redeemer, which has a very specific meaning here. If a childless woman is widowed, a male kin can redeem her through marriage. This guarantees that through him, her inheritance will not be lost and she will have offspring. Naomi is careful to say, of our redeeming kin, properly implying that there may be other candidates in the family. Chapter 3 concludes the harvest, which means there's no more food to collect. Boaz's kindness had kept them fed, but now there's no place else for their story to go, unless Naomi proposes that Ruth hook up with Boaz. Quote, and now, is not Boaz our kinsman with those young women you were winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight? And you must bathe and anoint yourself and put on your garments and go down to the threshing floor. Do not let yourself be known to the man till he has finished eating and drinking. And it will be when he lies down 
that you will know the place where he lies down, and you shall come unto him and uncover his feet and lie down. And as for him, he shall tell you what you should do. It's clear to me what Naomi wants Ruth to do up until the last line when she tells her former daughter-in-law to uncover Boaz's feet. Is this a euphemism for... Either way, Ruth does as she's instructed, and Boaz, having worked hard and gotten a little bit of his drink on, awakes to discover a woman is there with him. Quote, and he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. May you spread your wing over your servant, for you are a redeeming kinsman. And he said, Blessed are you to Adonai, my daughter. You have done better in your latest kindness than in the first, not going after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. Whatever you say, I will do for you. For all my people's town knows that you are a worthy woman. And now, though in fact I am a redeeming kin, there is also a redeeming kin closer than I. Spend the night here, and it shall be in the morning. Should he redeem you, he will do well to redeem. And if he does not want to redeem you, I myself will redeem you as Adonai lives. Lie here till morning. All of this business about redeeming kin kind of kills the mood a little, but Ruth has succeeded. Boaz will take the necessary steps to make sure that he and no other male relative will marry her and carry on Elimelech's extended family's name. She slips out before the workers awake in the morning and returns to Naomi with the news. In chapter 4, all is revealed. Boaz goes to the city gate and announces that he will take responsibility and redeem Elimelech, marrying Ruth and continuing the family line. No one challenges this, and the nearest kin who could have redeemed but didn't removes his sandal, alluding to but misapplying the traditions of the Leveret marriage in Deuteronomy, and in so doing, transferring his obligation to Boaz. The witnesses and elders respond, quote, We are witnesses. May Adonai make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and do worthy things in Ephrata, and proclaim a name in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Peretz, to whom Tamar gave birth by Judah, from the seed that this young woman will give you. Boaz and Ruth marry, and in a heartwarming departure from tradition, the neighbor women, Naomi's support network, give the child a name, Oved, which the text immediately informs us, quote, was the father of Jesse, father of David. And if that's not clear enough, the scroll of Ruth suddenly goes all Genesis on us with a list of begats going back to Peretz, son of Judah, and then all the way ahead to King David himself. Many take Ruth at face value and date its authorship in the period of the Judges. The Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Tanakh, sandwiches Ruth in between Judges and Samuel, and thus its canon in Christian Bibles. But if you look at the style and the language choice, it's hard to imagine that this scroll comes from the pre-monarchic period in Jewish history. Scholars have argued that Ruth was composed in the period after the return from Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE. They point to the bucolic setting, its backcountry location, and the lack of conflict in the story. All the narratives from Genesis through Kings simmer with tension and violence. In Ruth's world, 
owner and worker greet each other with a howdy-do and traditional practices like leket, where the gleaners' left-behinds are left to the poor and the pseudo-leveret marriage rites are commonplace, the characters are also not as internally conflicted or compromised by moral questions. In other words, there are really no villains in this story. Even Orpa, who departs from Naomi, does so at Naomi's insistence. No one gets abandoned, no one gets stranded, Ruth is just the exemplary daughter-in-law. The unnamed kinsman isn't even a villain either. He's just not as committed as Boaz. And so, with a scroll filled with paragons of virtue, it begs the question, even the Moabite, the foreigner, she's exemplary too? Mm-hmm. Which prompted many to interpret this scroll, in light of its believed period of authorship, to be what Robert Alter calls, quote, a quiet polemic against the opposition of Ezra and Nehemiah to intermarriage with the surrounding peoples when the Jews returned to their land in the 5th century BCE. As much as the text persistently identifies Ruth as a Moabite and a foreigner, she is also hailed by the Bethlehemites as, quote, like Rachel and like Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. She is the very embodiment of the Eshet Chayil that we read about in Proverbs. So how could Ezra and Nehemiah have beef with her? To answer this, we have to pause for a moment and consider what was going on in Ezra and Nehemiah's world in that make-or-break period after the return to Zion after the Babylonian exile. And to understand this, we have to remember that after the destruction of the first temple, though a bit earlier than the 70 years forecasted by the prophet Yirmiyahu, the exile of the Jews ended abruptly with Cyrus of Persia's conquest of the Babylonian Empire in 538 BCE. In the first year of Cyrus's reign, the newly minted monarch issued what is known as the Cyrus Proclamation. As the book of Ezra recounts, quote, Thus said Cyrus, king of Persia, Adonai, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Adonai, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Though it is near impossible to determine exact numbers of those who were deported from Judah in 586 when the temple was destroyed and those who stayed behind, so too was the case with the return to Zion from Babylonia that Cyrus encouraged. Though one would have expected Babylonia's Jews to rise as one to return to their ancestral homeland, a quick look at the genealogy lists enumerated in Ezra chapter 2 and 3 kind of undermines that impression. Meanwhile, in the land of Israel, a small group of Jews had remained throughout the period of this exile. When the fires of rebellion were extinguished and the dust of the deported settled, they rebuilt their lives, scattered across the war-torn landscape. Over the decades, the Jews who stayed behind blended their families with the foreigners who moved in to fill the vacuum. However, they continued to see themselves as Jews. They even continued to offer sacrifices to God in the temple ruins for decades after the destruction, keeping that Jewish tradition alive as best they could. So imagine their consternation in 538 BCE when a group of Babylonian pioneers appeared in their midst to resettle the land. 
The returnees came under a banner of, one could say, a landless people for a peopleless land as representatives of God's promise fulfilled. Their social and political assumptions, as well as religious attitudes, would inevitably bring them into conflict with the locals. A conflict that would rage over generations around two issues, possession of land and purity of line. I can only imagine how shocked the returnees must have been to discover that their ancestral homeland was not peopleless. Nevertheless, God had promised to end their exile, and the Torah stated that land sold and even resold over decades would revert to their original owners in a jubilee year. The locals were unmoved by these claims. They had worked the land for generations, and they would not simply hand everything over to some foreigner based on a bygone claim. If anyone had to make any adjustments, it should be the returnees. The returnees were the newcomers without any established society in Judah or readily recognizable religious practices. They would have to fit in. Many of the returnees from Babylonia, even though they adopted some Babylonian affectations like the calendar or Babylonian-inspired names, they were nonetheless endogamous in religious outlook and marriage practices, meaning they kept to themselves. Their family trees had deep roots and strong, pure lines. Conversely, the native Jews were inclusive, long accustomed to high levels of cultural exchange with neighboring elites, and blending with foreigners. Their family trees were also deeply rooted in the land, but had hybrid vigor. And until the arrival of Ezra, it seemed that this vigor threatened to contaminate the purity of the returnee community. When Ezra arrived from Babylonia, the situation as portrayed in his eponymous book was dire. Ezra was a sofer, a scribe, and redactor of the Torah. He was also a kohen, a priest from a renowned family of priests whose lineage could be traced back to the first priest Aaron's son Pinchas. He arrived in Judah in, quote, the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. As the new head of the Jewish community in Judah, Ezra had surprisingly strong Persian backing. Nehemiah, in his eponymous book, reports that Ezra had plenipotentiary powers, including the right to punish disobedient locals by expropriating their land. He had authorization to transfer all the monies donated by Babylonian Jews and government officials for reconstruction projects in Judah, including the temple in Jerusalem. Ezra could extend tax-exempt status to the Kohanim, the Levites, and the Netinim for their service in the temple, as well as appoint magistrates and judges. And what's most important, he could appoint teachers to, quote, teach the law of God to the Jews. Much of what popular Jewish tradition recounts about Ezra comes from the Babylonian Talmud. The rabbis of the Talmudic period, known as Amoraim, lavish praise on Ezra's stature as a scholar. They even went as far as to say that had he been born before Moshe, it would have been Ezra that brought the Torah to Israel. They declared that Ezra single-handedly re-established the Torah amongst the Jews in his time. He's credited with establishing public forums for worship and chanting of the Torah, the adoption of the Assyrian script for Hebrew letters, as well as universal Jewish education for children. In a way, in Ezra, we start to see a Judaism that's familiar to many of us. As revered as Ezra was, some rabbis in the Talmud wondered why it took him so long to return to Zion. Shouldn't he have been one of the first to undertake such an important endeavor? 
One story states that Ezra didn't leave out of respect for his teacher, Baruch ben Neria. Ben Neria had been a disciple of the prophet Yirmiyahu, and he was too old and frail to make the journey. So only after ben Neria had passed away, Ezra decided to leave. The second story foreshadows the crisis of communal identity, Ezra's ideology, and his response. The Talmud relates that Ezra didn't leave Babylonia until, quote, he had made them, that is, the Babylonian Jews, like the purest sifted flour. For Ezra, to ensure Jewish viability, one must remove all impurities from the community. But why Ezra was preoccupied with this in Babylonia is somewhat puzzling. Why would he have to sift through Babylonia's Jews, and specifically those who had no intention of returning to Zion? Though their relationships with non-Jews were generally friendly, Babylonian Jews lived insular, secluded lives. Furthermore, though an overwhelming majority opted to remain in Babylonia, traditional sources never cast any doubts on the purity of their family lines. Just the opposite. Even without the help of JewishGenealogy.com, the keeping of meticulous family histories was not only a popular hobby, but a guarantee that if the time came to return to Judah, old family estates could be reclaimed. So according to this story, only when Ezra was confident that the community he would leave behind was of the purest Jewish lineage, only then did he pack his bags and return to the land of Israel. For the remainers... Ezra's seal of approval would be a very nice addition to the framed family portrait, but what of those families whose lineage was considered questionable? What happened to them? Apparently, they were packed off to join Ezra in Judah, where, no pun intended, he would keep them in line. For Ezra, the sullying of family lines, or as we would say today, intermarriage... was a crisis of biblical proportions, and as such, the response would need to be as epic as it was radical. Imagine Ezra arriving in Jerusalem, and, and without even a moment to pour some water over his tired feet, he receives the following report from the city's officials. Quote, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be the wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. The Canaanites, Hittites, Prezites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites... They were long gone from Judea. Joshua's armies supposedly annihilated them in the book of Joshua. However, the invocation of those ancient idolaters would resonate with and surely scandalize a sofer, a scribe. These tribes, according to the book of Deuteronomy, were the epitome of abomination. Taking their daughters as wives would profoundly defile the Jewish bloodline. Appalled by the, quote, faithlessness of the returned exiles, Ezra crumpled into despondency. He rent his garments and tore hair from his head and beard. He sat desolate until the evening when he arose and set out the new agenda. The saving remnant must be purified from the uncleanliness of the land and its inhabitants. In other words, Ezra ordered Jewish men to divorce their non-Jewish wives and send them away. Ezra didn't need to employ a Torah-inspired rhetoric of defilement and 
necessary purification to justify his edict. He could have simply just said it. He could have just issued the order without any justification whatsoever. He had that power. However, if you look closely at the language he uses, you'll discover that Ezra's decree concerning foreigners diverged greatly from classical Jewish tradition. The Torah employs the word ger or nochri when regarding the state of estrangement and foreignness. Abraham first uses this term when looking to buy a burial plot, describes himself as, quote, a stranger, ger, and sojourner, toshav, with you. Exodus chapter 2, verse 22, twins, ger and nochri, when explaining the meaning of Moses' son, Gershom's name, quote, for Moses said, I have been a stranger, ger, in a strange land, Eretz nochria. Clearly, the experience of foreignness made a strong impression on Moses. Every time he mentioned his eldest son by name, he would inevitably remember his double estrangement. He would recall being a ger in Egypt and the bitter oppression and enslavement of his people. However, he would also recall being a ger in Midian and the kindness extended to him by Jethro Yitro's family. As renowned scholar Nechama Leibovitch observed, how society treats the ger determines how moral that society is. The Torah goes on to command Jews to treat the ger with dignity. On 36 distinct occasions, the Torah reminds us of our foreigner status in Egypt and how badly we were treated as the vulnerable other in Egyptian society. And what's fascinating is that the Torah quickly follows each reminder with yet another piece of social legislation. The Jewish experience in Egypt, beyond providing grist for Cecil B. DeMille, serves a higher purpose, framing a vision for a just society. At the heart of this just society, one finds the ger. This acknowledgement might have made some impression on Ezra, but the defiling women he sought to distance were, in all likelihood, descendants of the Jews who never left Judah. These women did not qualify for ger status. In his mind, they were anything but strangers in Judah. They, as Ezra stated, were the daughters of, quote, the people of the land, at worst abominable idolaters in the Canaanite style, though probably not, or at best, Jew-ish. Either way, the ambiguous status of these women and most assuredly their dodgy, inclusive religious practices threatened the pure family lines of the returnees. And though Ezra himself didn't come up with the idea, he agreed wholeheartedly that they had to be uprooted and cast out. He became the face of that radically exclusivist policy. Ezra's notion of a holy race or holy seed whose boundaries needed urgent protection is the predecessor of the many spirited and, to be honest, offensive arguments we hear from boomer Jewish sociologists and pulpit rabbis who regularly rail against intermarriage. Ezra issues his divorce edict to the weeping and consternation of the wider Jewish community. However, his decisive yet cruel act is blunted as one chapter later he vanishes from the Judean stage. Was he recalled to Persia to manage the edict's blowback? The Persians, as we see from their imperial policies, were strong advocates of multiculturalism. The book of Ezra does not say, nor does it recount whether countless Jewish families were torn apart by the radical exclusivism of its religious leader. 
Nonetheless, one would think that Ezra's lofty stature and the demonstrated tendency toward in-marriage would settle the argument once and for all. Jewish patrimony and lineage are to be preserved at all costs. Right? Well, the authors of Ruth disagree. Beneath all the delightful, idyllic portraits of Judean life, the scroll of Ruth directly challenges Ezra's obsession with endogamy. If Ezra would have balked at the ambiguous local women, he would have choked on Ruth's lineage as a Moabite. Naomi surely choked up upon hearing Ruth's declaration of faith and affiliation. It motivated her in classic rom-com style to scheme to get her daughter-in-law and Elimelech's kinsman Boaz together. The rest of the story is rather predictable, but charming nonetheless. Jewish boy meets Moabite girl, he lets her glean in his field, she uncovers his feet, and the rest is history. That you know who you love, you can't deny. And let's review that history from Ezra's perspective. Outside of Elimelech and Naomi, every union mentioned in that story is tainted, including that of our heroes Boaz and Ruth. Accordingly, the offspring of those unions are not Jews. This means that, depending on whom those descendants marry, the status of the child might be in question, including, most notably, Ruth's descendant King David and his descendant, the future Messiah. Thus, if Ezra's policy had been applied in the time of the judges, both the Jews' most beloved king and their future savior might never have been born, as Boaz would have been compelled to send Ruth and their children away. Ouch! However, as we know, not only did Ezra's policy not preclude the birth of a Jewish King David and the Messiah wherever and whenever they decide to come, Ezra's exclusivist attitudes didn't even prevail upon the canonizers of the Jews' most important book to exclude a book about defiling non-Jewish women marrying Jewish men. In other words, by including the scroll of Ruth in the Tanakh, the quiet polemic became a stinging rebuke of Ezra's exclusivism. All that hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about intermarriage. It's a feature, not a bug in our community. Our community has always been about inclusion, fluid identities and boundaries, willful affiliation, and the creative embrace of Jewish practice. We just have to be open to it and unafraid. As Boaz said to Ruth, quote, May Adonai requite your actions and may your reward be complete from Adonai, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to shelter. If you like what you hear today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 213, when we begin the scroll of Lamentations with chapters 1 through 3.